Photoshelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Alan Murabayashi. And I'm Sarah Jacobs. Sarah, this week on the show, nothing about news, just stuff about great photography. A little bit of a change <laughs> from the past few weeks. I'm here for it. I thought we should have a little bit of a change. <laughs> I think ch- change would be good. <laughs> well, here we go. Here we go with something new. You know how the whole world fell in love with Vivian Meyer and like her story and her work? And there was like a documentary, there was tons of different books, there was like, you know, legal battles (laughs) over who owns her work, all that stuff. We are, as a culture, and especially just the photo industry, we are suckers for these kind of unknown photographers. And um, this one photographer, Alberto Di Leonardo, uh, has been discovered by his granddaughter. He led her up to the attic to show her eight thousand negatives and photographs that he had taken throughout his lifetime and uh, the second that she started seeing the work she said oh my god I'm going to become your art dealer Um, and she is the editor of his new book he passed away in 2018 Um, but of his first book published by Mac under the title An Attic Full of Trains and it's color photography from like the 1940s 50s in Europe and the work is just gorgeous everybody wants to discover like a trove of hidden talent and I think that's the the Vivian story which you know resonated of course she was a remarkable photographer Yes. Arguably one of the, you know, probably arguably one of the top 10 in the 20th century. So I think there's a, a bit of a fascination yes. with finding a few more hidden gems in there. The, the, the book title, An Attic Full of Trains, is also a re- reference to when uh, Alberto's granddaughter was shown this secret room. He had also been building model trains as well. So yeah, like, oh, like it's really cool that. because How he cute. just had, you know, this secret room that nobody knew about, or I'm sure, you know, his wife probably knew about, like, that's his man cave. But can you imagine being like <laughs> the granddaughter and being like, I have something to show you. And then finding this, this magical room filled with all of this stuff. It's so cool. Oh, it just must've been so cool. And, and the book's theme, uh, it basically, the images circle around beaches, bars, mountains, road trips, lovers, and friends throughout Europe. I mean, like, what else do we want to look at right now, like, while we're in quarantine? Like, that just sounds, take me back. I want to look at these beautiful color photographs. Sounds great. There is something really cool about finding a photographer who's not a, quote, professional photographer, especially back, you know, back in the film days where it's much harder to, uh, commit to buying a a camera and buying the film and developing, you know, he still has a very vernacular style, but the composition is Mm -hmm. like really great. And there's also just a, there's, there's something really kind of a throwback style to, to the way that he sees things. You know, there's obviously like the beautiful girls kind of Italian, uh, machismo kind of style of seeing things, which I mean, you could argue yeah. that that's eh, a little gross, you know, but, but I don't really see that in his photos. I think he was kind of fascinated yeah. by the world and you see just kind of really interesting compositions and, uh, color, you know, to the extent that the, the, the film negatives have lasted over the, the generations and the decades, you know, they're obviously washed out, but there's some really, really nice photos in there. What a great find. Absolutely. 
I know. I, I really like seeing work from this era that wasn't taken by like Gary right. Winogrand, you know, or a little bit later by William Eggleston. I also wonder whether photographers like Alberto had seen the work of Eggleston, for example, or Robert Frank or whatever, and, yeah. and how much influence those photographers had on Alberto's visual style. Because you can obviously see some, mm-hmm. I don't know whether homage, you know, if he wasn't aware, then there's no homage to be had. But there's some there's some similarities in the way that he sees things. Um, yeah, definitely. I think one thing, he's he's a little bit of a street yeah. photographer too. And one thing is like, I mean, you you he had over 8,000 photographs, you know, in there. I think being prolific is kind of the main key, you know? Like, I mean, he obviously had talent, but being prolific leads to capturing incredible moments sure, like he did. For sure, I was uh, perusing my Facebook feed and I came across a, a post by Kevin Fisher, who's the former creative director at the Audubon Society. And he had posted photos from Aaron Siskin that I hadn't seen before. And the series title was Pleasures and Terrors of Levitation. Now, Siskin is well-known in photography circles. He was a member uh, in the mid-30s of the Photo League, um, which was one of the first to kind of really use photography for uh, social conscious, socially conscious uh, uh, initiatives. Um, and he then became more interested in abstract work um, and left the Photo League and kind of uh, concentrated on, on more abstract work, particularly that of textures and architecture. Um, but the levitation photos, he went out and he found kids jumping off of a, uh, like a pier uh, or a bridge um, and just caught them against the sky. So they're very abstract in terms of like you see bodies kind of flying through the air, but they're so mm-hmm. wonderful, the shapes, and you can see joy in, in what they're doing. They're, they have a very modern look to them. I think if I saw them without knowing, you know, when Aaron was alive, I would guess that this was shot for like the ESPN body issue. You totally. know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, just look at the lighting style. He, he's using ambient light, but you, you know, it's later in the day. There's very directional light. It's high contrast. Um, you don't get a ton of faces. They're often almost silhouette style images, but you do get a few faces where you get a sense of just like, these guys are having fun. And I think that's what mm-hmm. really, really comes across. It, I saw these images and then it immediately reminded me of uh, the Olympics. Um, a number of photographers have been capturing the faces of Olympic divers as they get into the pool. <laughs> and often, you know, they're, they're, they're going off a 10 meter platform. So that's a long way to fall. Um, and so they have these very intense faces and CBS News had a, a roundup many, many years ago of these faces and a, a lot of different photographers, Christoph Simon being one of them for Getty Images, has taken photos of these uh, divers. So that was, that was kind of the first thing that it reminded me of. Then secondly, it reminded me of the 1992 Olympics. And because we're supposed to be in the Olympics right now or near the Olympics right now, uh, I just remember these shots that people got of the Barcelona skyline and these divers coming off the board, it seemed like they were just jumping into the air. Uh, Bob Martin with Getty <laughs> Images. I mean, there were so many uh, photographers that took similar images at the time, but these are color images. The, the light is much more um, 
fully lighting the bodies so they're not as abstract, but you still get that sense of them floating in air. What did you think of these Mm. 1992 photos, young one? Yeah, I... I know. I actually had not been familiar with those either. And being able to just see a bit of the the uh, the city skyline in the background while these swimmers are, you know, suspended midair. It's just it's phenomenal. Those are beautiful. And then I also remembered a project that a New York City based photographer, Brad Harris, did back in 2013 of divers against seamless backgrounds. And I was looking at these photos and I looked at the Siskin photos and I was like, holy smoke. Very, very similar. <laughs> Siskin stuff is, again, all ambient light. Uh, Brad Harris's images are lit, uh, but he's controlling the light in a way that it's still very, very directional. It's creating similar types of shadows. Uh, the po- body positionings in, in the Harris photos are more pro divers. So they're more like sleek. They're not as fun, but visually very, very similar mm. kind of project. One thing about Siskin is that he really had range. I mean, he was kind of known as a painter's photographer because of his abstract work, but then he was also a very good documentary photographer as well. He had a famous book called Harlem Document, um, which has beautiful photos of life in Harlem in the 1930s, people on the streets and in churches um, and in clubs. Uh, And Gordon Parks wrote an intro to that book. But just yeah, his range, the, the, what he's able to do. What a guy. What a guy. What a guy. <laughs> Took a selfie in 1953, <laughs> too, which you can find online. <laughs> we'll, we'll show you the links to all of this stuff at our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. The last image that this stuff sort of reminded me of was the falling man from 9-11. And I was thinking mm. about the shape of that body versus the bodies in Siskin's photos. And Mm -hmm. what strikes me about the falling man photo is there's a serenity to that photo. I mean, we've projected a lot and there have been a lot of people that have speculated both on the identity of the person, why he jumped, what was going through his mind, et cetera. And so all of this is sort of my projection of of all of this stuff. But I think this person kind of had to come to peace with saying, okay, this isn't going to work out, so I'm going to jump. And so there's a, there's a mm. serenity and calmness to the body. There is obviously no joy in that photo. When you look at the Siskin stuff, you see joy. You see contortions of the body. You see people flipping in the air on purpose, which you don't get from the falling man photo. But there, there's such, the, you know, the, the, the notion of a silhouetted body against the sky is such a powerful shape, I think, that it's hard not to kind mm-hmm. of recollect these different incarnations of bodies flying through the air. So, you know, it was an interesting comparison to come across this stuff and then immediately be remi- reminded yeah. of, of all these other photos. I came across uh, a tweet that fits into my category of favorite tweets. I love Twitter, whether it's like Twitter beef or if it's just something short, sweet, and like a really good point. And Hannah Beachler um, had a tweet that got over 60,000 retweets. Uh, she said something really on point about photography. She says, a thought, can we stop showing black and white pictures of the entire decade of the 1960s so people stop thinking it was 1,000 years ago? 
I'm two years younger than the civil rights movement. And Ruby Bridges lives down the street from me and is on Instagram. (laughs) And in the tweet, she has four color photographs of the civil rights march of some civil rights marches, two of which feature MLK. Um, I'm not sure who they were photographed by. But they're in color and they're just gorgeous. And I thought she made a fantastic point. Let's colorize all those. You know, (laughs) I think I mentioned (laughs) on one of our podcasts a million years ago that when I was a kid, because all of the footage from the quote past wasn't black and white, I used to think the world was black and white back then. (laughs) And that we slowly became a color world. So I totally get where she's coming from. And she has provided way more examples of color photography during the civil rights movement than I was aware of. So definitely makes a good point. She brings up Gordon Park, his work, you know, we've talked about it before, like obviously like amazing Mm. stuff going on. I will say Mm. as a counterpoint, and I'll have to actually research it to figure out how true it is. You know, the guys that were working for the newspapers and the news magazines at the time were often shooting with, black and white film. And when you think of these images of like the police dogs or the lunch counters, I don't know that color photos of that stuff exists. And so to the extent Mm. that you're trying to show these protests at the time and these iconic scenes of police brutality and racism and whatnot, I don't know that those types of images exist in color. So that would be the only pushback that I would give here. But, you know, Hannah Beachler, she's Academy Award winning uh, production designer. Uh, she's worked with Ryan Coogler on Fruitvale Station. She won the Academy Award for Black Panther. She did a Miles Davis movie. She's very familiar with this era from her research, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I got I to gotta assume that she knows way more than I do about what exists in terms of historical record from the 60s. And we're, I mean... Were newspapers sending out their their photojournalists with color film at all, you think? I mean, or was it just well, too expensive? I think the processing was way more complex. And when you're on deadline, and, and particularly because you needed to transmit, right, on these old machines, that black and white was the right. way that you did it when it came to breaking news photos that needed to, to, be, to go out, you know, overnight and then be published. Quickly. Yeah. So, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. was there a life photographer out there shooting color of this stuff? Probably. And that's probably where a lot of this comes from. (laughs) You know, is the police dog photo going to be in color? Probably not. Yeah. We're going to end with a a piece in the New York Times called The Strange Lure of Other People's Photos. And it was written by Bill Shapiro, who is the former editor in chief of the reboot of Life magazine and the co-author of a book called What We Keep. He is actually the guy that re- uh, resurrected Life Magazine as a weekly newspaper supplement in 2004 after it stopped being a weekly um, in 1972. And in this piece, he kind of contrasts coming across found photos. Um, and he says, uh, I get emotional when I look at them, but not in the same way as I do the photos of my children. With my own photos, I hear the fast ticking of the second hand. The old pictures keep a more steady time. Humanity's slow and sweeping waltz. And, you know, I was looking at some of the examples of these photos, and I keep coming across uh, photos from, you know, the 70s, for example. Um, We'll talk on on another show about some camp photos from, from the 1970s. There is this weird nostalgia 
for looking at other people's lives and seeing kind of the vernacular mm-hmm. photography, not really connecting with it at a, at a, you know, a, a familial level in terms of like, I know that person, but connecting to it in terms of like the era or the zeitgeist or the feeling that it, it kind of brings up that I find really compelling about what, what Bill wrote in this piece. Yeah, he really, he's such a good writer and he just captured that feeling that photo nerds like us feel when you look at these archived images. Um, And it's funny, like when COVID kind of like first hit and we were all going into quarantine and the economy was like really in the tank at that moment, I had this weird urge to look at the Farm Security Administration's (laughs) archive um, via the Library of Congress because kind of what Bill describes, you know, I wanted to see these people that had survived like world wars and, you know, the the 1918 pandemic. Um, And so I just totally got it. This was just such a sweet little essay. And also I just want to note that I worked under Bill when I worked at Life very briefly in 2011. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it was nice to see this piece published in the Times and re- it really resonated. That's very cool, Sarah. I forgot about your little time life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say that's probably, yeah, I was just an intern there. So this was like many yeah. moons ago, but yeah. He has yeah. A, a paragraph in the piece uh, where he says, the neuroscientist and author David Eagleman has written that we all die three deaths. The first is when the body ceases to function. The second is when the body is consigned to the grave. The third is that moment sometime in the future when your name is spoken for the last time. And then Bill writes, I would say there's a fourth, the moment the last remaining picture of you is seen for the final time. And I read that and I was like, whoa, that is deep. <laughs> whoa. You know, yes. It, maybe yes. things are different with digital photography because maybe the images of you will be residing on a hard drive or some sort of digital storage, uh, you know, for millennia to come. Mm. But there certainly will be a point where printed images of a certain person disintegrate, or they're destroyed, or they just cease mm-hmm. to exist, and then you have no visual record of that person's existence anymore. And that's kind of. You know, we're, we're in such a visual age, it's sort of a mind-blowing concept to think about that no photo mm-hmm. of this person will ever exist again when you knew when you knew that the photos had existed previously. So, some deep yeah. thoughts by Bill Shabiro. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we're going to leave you with that deep thought to contemplate. <laughs> so, until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs> we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.